Well, welcome to Halfway There, my friends. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Derek Nevins. I'm so glad you're here. This is going to be an interesting conversation, and I'm just excited to dive into it. So my guest today is a pastor. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist and speaker, musician. He does some teaching, and uh, he describes himself as an all-around bio and I guess we'll ask about that. Uh, hey, please welcome to Halfway There, Mark Karras. Mark, thanks for coming, being on Halfway There. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be here. I'm yeah, guessing. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm guessing biophilic means lover of life. Yeah, all around person who just loves life. Although I've been thinking about uh, retracting that term because I realize that I do on occasion eat meat. So <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, how right. much life, but I'm very thankful for the meat that I have to have to survive. Although people say that you don't need meat to survive. <laughs> anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I, I like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I like that. Okay. Well, awesome. I think that's a great way to describe yourself. So that's cool. You're also the author of several books and we're going to talk, uh, certainly about those, but Tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of who you are, where you, where God has you now, and then let's go back and dig through your story. Right now, my wife and I just got back from Japan after three and a half years. So we're back here in San Diego, and she's working most of the time while I'm watching our one-year-old. Okay. And I am finishing my uh, doctorate in um, psychology with emphasis in marriage and family therapy. Gotcha. I'm teaching a class at, uh, at uh, Alliant International University, and I will be teaching uh, starting in the summer uh, in a little bit here at Point Loma Nazarene University. And both courses are uh, counseling, although Point Loma is the integration of faith and counseling. And just got uh, written my my second book, so doing a lot of um, kind of workshops and, and speaking for that, and yep, just taking it one day at a time. Very cool. Oh, well, that's that's great. I can't wait to hear all about all that. Um, tell us a little bit. Let's go back a little and tell us about how you found Christ, how you came to Christ, and what that was like for you. Wow, how I found Christ. It, it's a big question. Yeah, I know how, how I realized Christ found me. Um, yeah, uh, it, it goes back to a while, probably in my about 20 years old, uh, maybe a little earlier, 19. Now, before that, we have to sort of go back to really get the the heart of my testimony here. And that is growing up. I mean, everybody's family is dysfunctional. I'm yes. a firm believer that every parent <laughs> should save up for their children's therapy fund. Um, <laughs> Not their college, so, right? Mark, you and I are going to get along a lot. I say that all the time, and people give me weird looks like, what? Oh, <laughs> hell no. It's just, come on, look what happened to the first set of parents and what, what happened with their children. Right. Can't enable. Uh, but yeah, so every every family's a little dysfunctional. I think mine was a little over the top on the charts, uh, at least on the spectrum, way over to the to the far end. So we have, man, just really struggling as a kid. Mom was a, uh, you know, she was a drug addict, uh, drug dealer, a very chaotic uh, atmosphere. She got involved with somebody in the pagans motorcycle gang. Okay. And he was this like 350 pound, fully tatted. Now, when I first met him at like eight, nine, a monster, he was like a, a monster in the living room. I was quite scared when I first yeah. met him. So within that milieu of violence and drugs and just chaos, and then of course my parents, they divorced when I, uh, we were six. I have a twin brother and a younger brother's a year and two months younger. And my dad was, well, well, uh, mentally ill. Uh, he not well, um, very abusive. And then you have, which is really interesting. I mean, being a therapist, really interesting. Interested in my family background. My great grandmother died in a mental hospital. Her sister was mentally ill, and three out of my four uncles have a mental illness. Oh, wow. And my brother uh, was diagnosed with uh, paranoid schizophrenia. And he's, uh, well, he's in prison. 
and that's another story, but he being off his meds, uh, he's, uh, well, he's, he murdered someone in prison and he'll be in prison for the rest of his yeah. life. But so to go back to when I was a kid, I was a cutter, depressed, lost, hopeless. I think what my real saving grace was, was music. And I picked up the guitar at around 14, 15. And by the age of 16, I, I managed to pick it up fairly quickly and uh, playing some bars in 17, 18, 19, uh, opening up for a national acts uh, and um, really doing well in wow. a band, an old band called Apocalypse, uh, okay. would be more well known in the uh, Long Island, New York scene. Yeah. But so very lost. And then fast forward growing up, teen craziness and uh, lost and. My twin brother became a Christian, and I think we're we're talking about maybe twenty years old. Okay, he would tell me about Jesus, and I'd be like, "Shut up! Don't give me that Jesus stuff. I don't want to hear nothing about Jesus." And I really fought it. You know, I don't even know who or what I was fighting. I just knew I didn't want to be that, whatever that was, because we didn't have much of a religious uh, upbringing at all. Yeah. And so he would tell me about Jesus. I would come home from shows and, you know, Jesus loves you. And and at some point, there's something was drawing me. Uh, well, I, he, Jesus was drawing me. Yeah. And when, when he wasn't looking, my brother, I, I would read the Bible a little bit. Like, what is this? What is this faith? What is this Christianity uh, that he was talking about? So, you know, I was a little curious, of course, being someone who's, you know, depressed and lost and, you know, wanted some kind of real true meaning in my life. Is it true? And then little things happened that were kind of unexplainable. It seemed like the closer I was getting to Jesus, the more my external world was becoming chaotic. And to the point I tried killing myself and probably one of the weirdest and strange and, and strange, stupid ways one can try killing themselves. I tried to get AIDS and uh, that's a whole weird story with uh, a lesbian who was living with other le lesbians. It was just a really crazy story. Okay. So, we don't have to go into the X-rated sure. details. Uh, but well, that, there's an was, interesting psychology yeah, to that though, right? I mean, there, there's an interesting, yeah, we don't we have yeah. to go into all of it, but yeah. So you, you what yeah. that tells me is you were in a dark place. Yeah, yeah, to say the least, right? The least. And then I had a, a, an experience where I was in my bed, and it was at night, and my brother's in the next room, and I couldn't move. I, I felt like I could barely breathe, and I saw three red manifestations of some kind. And I was scared crapless. I mean, I I didn't know what to do. Um, and I remember calling out to my brother or tried calling out and I couldn't, words couldn't come out. And I closed my eyes and I did the only thing that I thought was rational at the time. I said, Jesus, if you're there, please save me. And then I opened my eyes and what do you know? They were still there. <laughs> oh, wow. So, <laughs> but all I know is, and I know it's strange, but I woke up and as soon as I woke up, um, I was crying hysterical. I felt like I was literally traumatized. And I went into my brother's room and I said, Michael, I told him what happened. And he said, Mark, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers of darkness and the spiritual hosts of wickedness and heavenly places. You know, obviously quoting. Yeah. Ephesians. And, and I was like, what the hell is going on? Now, was I doing drugs? No. Uh, probably because I saw what my mom was like and what she was doing and how that affected her. Yeah, you know, was it some weird sleep thing? As as a researcher now, I know there's an actual phenomenon called sleep paralysis that uh, researchers have come to find that other people experience the same things. They might have a different uh, origin or et etymology or etiology, actually, of why people experience it. But who the hell knows? Yeah. All I know is it shifted. And changed my my life. And, and and about a week later, I was in a in a um, outside in a field by myself. And I I'll never forget it. The last words I said was, 
I lifted my hands up to the sky and I said, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. Mm. I need you. And that was like a legitimate shift, like salvation moments. Not everyone has those, but that day was when I guess I was born anew, born again. Yeah. And my life was changed and I would cry hysterically. Like I was going to college at the time and I would just cry in class because I felt so much love. Like wow. I've never, and, and we'll go more into my story, but that in other experiences like that is why I still remain a Christian despite Christians. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hear that. Sure. Wow. That's so that is uh, just an amazing, um, moment that when you kind of gave yourself to Christ and when you see yourself and you see your need for God, that sounds like that really changed you. <laughs> that was an understatement. Yeah. It's uh <laughs> transformed me. It, it shifted my whole meaning and purpose in life. It uh, rocked my world. The experiential, tangible love of God that defined rational explanation and that became sort of memorial stone, uh, one of, of many that I could not forget that it, it's, it's something that was transcendent and imminent, and it's not something you can prove scientifically, but something that just it forever shaped and shifted my life. It's, uh, yeah, love. Yeah, well, I, I think that's so interesting. Yeah. This show is about the, those kind of experiences where you can't explain it, but you know that it's true and it's real. Yeah, absolutely. What happened then? Like what? So you were, were you still in the band at this time? Did you like leave that or what, what happened? You know, I stayed in the band probably for another year. And, uh, and I was actually with a, a porn star at the time. <laughs> and, um, you know, yeah, eventually I quit. Okay. Both. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, it took it took a little while to uh you know, I was still a long head a hippie freak and uh had a lot of areas of my heart that needed to be conformed to the image of Christ. But I think it was a year or less that um I I left both. Um, gotcha. The band kind of fell apart organically sort of and it was just felt like uh, the right time to yeah. to get out. Well, I didn't mean to suggest that it was you had to do that. I just was curious what happened, like where, where that led totally. you. Totally. But uh, yeah, it takes yeah. some time sometimes, yeah. doesn't it, to grow in, in Christ. I think I want people to hear that and say, okay, even if I'm new in the faith and or new to the practice of giving myself to Jesus, let's put it that way, uh, it's okay. Yeah. You know, it's okay to, to, to be there and let that, um, or get to get better at that practice, I guess. Yeah, it really is. And it's um, two things. I mean, we need to understand that for ourselves and to really experience the compassion of God to know, quote, like he knows our frame. He knows that we're of the dust. Yeah. I mean, and, and to know that it's really a lifelong process of sanctification or being coming more like Jesus and of course, I didn't always have that sort of compassionate mindset. I mean, part of my story veers into right into that, into a cult, uh, oneness Pentecostalism, and mm. sort of uh, perfectionism. And, you know, they're the only ones who are saved, and we're the only ones who have the truth, and we shouldn't fellowship with those who believe in a trinity, and women couldn't cut their hair, or they would... Uh, well, it wasn't ex well. Sometimes explicitly said they would go to hell. Men could. I couldn't have facial hair. Uh, I I had long hair, and I was told, you know, you need to cut it because there's a passage in Corinthians that says, "Doesn't nature itself teach you that it's a shame for a man to have long hair?" So that gets into the whole story of sort of this oneness, uh, strict Pentecostalism. Yeah. Uh, how'd you know. you, how'd you get into that? That was actually the church that my brother was became a Christian um, in, and so that was sort of the church that I wound up going to. Mm. Um, Which makes sense. Yep, and it was, you know, obviously a lot happened with the the couple who started the church, and a lot of 
unfortunate events. But yeah, I was in that for probably three and a half, four years. And I wasn't allowed to go to school. There was a lot of coercion in in force, control, uh, mostly around ideas and God. And, you know, I I was so sucked into this. And between this perfectionistic, performance-based, fear-based religion and my own inclination in issues in my own heart, I was so, uh, what's the word? Um, I was in such bondage that mm. if I had soda, I thought I was defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Wow. Right? Like, like this is in a context where I told uh, a very well-known pastor at the time in the, the, the UPC church, the United Pentecostal church, that I had wine in a wedding. And he looked at me with fierce eyes and said, Mark, you're in danger of hellfire. Wow. And I, I, are you kidding? Like, okay. I, I didn't know that drinking wine would damn me to hell, even though that I thought Christ died for me and for my sins, past, present, and future. But okay. So I was pretty scared. Yeah. That didn't help, that kind of attitude and mindset. Yeah. So yeah. looking back on it, how did that shape you? Obviously, fear was was part of it. So you had to overcome that at some point. I did. I did. And and remember, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Uh, because not only it was the church— but why do people like myself get drawn to these experiences, to these types of pastors, these types of omnipotent type of figures, this kind of structure, this kind of feelings of safety because you have the knowledge of the truth? And I'm not blaming uh, like victims of sure, cults, yeah. but it's it's sort of this mixed bag where we're yearning for something, and of course these kinds of churches uh, have something to offer and. It's uh, sort of this synergistic encounter that takes place. So I have my own family background that affected me. And, and of course, the pastor reminded me of my own father, right, who was very fear-based, mm. performance-based, yeah. you know, never could please, never could make happy, was always grumpy, hit me, uh, never, you know, never expressed love towards me or affection so that that if that's a whole you know that's the whole pie there. So I wound up leaving that church after the the pastor uh the the wife had an affair and all kinds of crazy stuff. And something literally snapped in my chest as I was listening and watching them argue in front of me because I was sort of a leader in that ch small church. And I said I got to get out of here. And although I was encouraged not to go to school, I knew someone at a Christian college called Naya College, and I, I ran there. It was probably three weeks, four weeks later, I found myself at this Christian institution, and then I would have panic attacks. I would be balled up on the floor, crying, feeling like I was going insane, People saying, well, they're Christians and they're going to pray for me. And yeah. who is God and what is true and what is faith and what is right and what is wrong? I felt like I was freaking losing my mind. Um, so, yeah, well, that makes sense yeah. because you, so yeah. after you found Jesus, then you found something that was not really Jesus. And uh, exactly. And, uh, and so it sounds like you were confused. I yeah, really I, I, really, I was confused. I was hurting. I was <clears throat> scared, fearful. It was a whole. Now, you know, I it's interesting. I, I look back and there were some positive things, I mean, about the church and people and elements of community and love, <clears throat> especially from the pastor's wife. So I can't, you know, as as you learn and grow, I can't split it all bad. Sure. And I ha and I have compassion for them and uh, what brought them to that point to have that kind of mindset. And thankfully, the yeah. at least I know the pastor's wife is no longer in that you know uh, cult situation. Has much broader and liberative understanding of God at this point. So stories continue. Sure. 
But this school actually was a huge saving grace for me. Very difficult in the beginning, tried to find my footing. Uh, but there were some people who, for the first time, and this was probably uh, after mid-25, 26, where I really had the first male mentors mm. in my life and who spoke life into me, who believed in me, who loved me to life and, and a little bit more wholeness and integration. And that was, uh, I really feel an indebtedness to uh, people like Ron Wolborn and uh, some other, uh, Brian Smeal, these other folks who were just instrumental in uh, in helping me recover and learn and grow. Yeah, that's so important. Because um, you really do need those. And it sounds like you you really needed some some good male mentorship to kind of show you what it was like to be not just a a man, but a believer. Oh yeah. Yeah. I had no idea what it was to be a man. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I mean, yeah. I mean, even as a Christian, so being a Christian a few years, um, man, there's a lot of things that I regret. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you talked a little bit about like the the compassion in one's growing uh, in in faith, and I had such a crazy background that I really didn't know what it meant to be a man. Yeah, and I I you know I regret some. Yeah, I I, I my hesitancy is because. I, part of me wants to honor people, and I, sure. I I don't know. Not like I'm saying names, but. There, there was an experience where I said to myself, I'm finally ready, ready to date. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. But the good thing is that it showed me that after years of being a Christian, that there are so many different areas of my heart uh, that were not very Christian-like. And that could only... I can only come into awareness when I came to close contact with another significant other, especially a woman who brought out all kinds of selfishness and lust and all kinds of things. I was like, holy crap, that's in there. Yeah. Um, so that's, that leads into other stories, but it's, it was a very humbling experience. Oh yeah. That's so fascinating. I love what you said there about there are other parts of my heart that still need work, right? Like that still need to be brought into the likeness of Christ. And I just think that's true. That's so, I find that true myself. I actually had a very similar thought this past week where I was like, I'm still, (laughs) I'm still growing. There's still some spaces where God's got to work on that and it's going to take time, you know? It really is. I mean, I'm a therapist, so I've worked with all kinds of pastors and mega pastors and man, it's, it's a charade. It's a, it's a freaking masquerade. You know, why do we do that? There's all kinds of reasons, but we are, we're social creatures and we, we need to feel like we belong. Mm -hmm. And it's this, it's this weird thing that we fear being truly known because if people truly knew us, then somehow we feel like we would be rejected from the group. We would be ostracized. We would, might be abandoned and for those who us were all as human beings wired for connection, for intimacy, uh, that aloneness literally is encoded in our nervous systems as as threat to self. That uh, rationally we know we won't die, but it's a really a fear-based mechanism that something within us. And if you think about way back of uh, more being group people. Being apart from the group meant you would die. Yeah. I mean, if you got kicked out of the group, uh, that's not good for you. Right. So we have this threat system that has evolved to to keep us from being harmed in some way and to protect our ego in, in, in another way. We want uh, that facade to stay there, to, to be loved, to be liked. But it's there's a cost. There's a cost to it. Yeah. As Richard Rohr says, that which we don't transform, we will transmit to others. Oh, At the man. end of the day, wounded people wound people, hurt people hurt people, and that will come out at some point. Yeah. And if we don't take care of our stuff, 
then it, other people will unfortunately have to as, as well as ourselves. Wow. So, has there ever been a time when that's been more evident in our society? I think just of the, some of the things that have come out in the last year um, with the whole Me Too movement and Harvey Weinstein and that's yeah. that's exactly what that's all about. That's who who you are will come out. Yeah, I mean, I think in every generation there are events like this, mm-hmm. and so I I don't I'm not sure it's just in our sort of uh, our epoch of time. Yeah, but but it's in for us we're alive and we're in this kind of generation, and different things come out right. So we're starting to see the deep-rooted uh, prejudice that still exists, the deep-rooted racism, mm-hmm. the misogyny, um, and of course there's ableism and ageism and all of these isms that there sort of can be dormant. And we can put on the facades, but with some kind of conflict, or if other people kind of speak up and say no more like, like women are doing, uh, mm-hmm. and then it then other people feel that they can have a voice. They're not afraid to be abandoned, quote, by the group because they can join other people and feel that strength in standing up for themselves and what is right and what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. And so for me, it's such, it's, I love it. Like, bring it out. I'm like, you go, girl. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. It needs, it needs to be dealt with. And yeah. even if you, you know, they have the Black Lives Matter and, Sure. You know, any kind of non-Christ-like stuff needs to be exposed and and bring it on, even in myself, which is a pretty dangerous thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think there's that's the essence of spiritual formation, right? To say, okay, let who I let what in me is not Christ-like come out. Okay, so eventually you became a therapist. So tell us about how you got there, and then I want to talk about your books. Well, obviously, with my background, there was always a hunger to to heal, to learn, to grow, and to understand myself, and at the same time, to be a, a catalyst and a change agent in the world to help others. I mean, that's that's my drive in life. Yeah. Um, and that's, it's not only a drive, it's a, I feel a deep calling. So becoming a therapist was, it just felt natural. It just, um, you know, it says in Corinthians, you know, the God of all comforts, you know, sometimes he uses that stuff in our own lives that suck and their tragedies. And by the way, I don't believe that it's, uh, the will of God for some, most of the, all of these evils to occur yeah. in our lives. And we could talk about that later, but that God of comfort comforts us so that we can comfort others. And th- it's no question that everything that's occurred in my life has been used by God to help others on their journey. Um, to, uh, you know, those who, uh, are loved, uh, and a forgiven much loves much, and it certainly that is that is my case uh, where God has taken me from. So being a therapist, it was felt very natural, and then I got my master's of divinity as well. Mm. Sort of that two pronged. I felt drawn to to psychology and counseling, and at the same time to learn more about faith and spirituality and religion and other religions. Yeah. And so it makes for a great uh, combination. Yeah, I bet. That's it's kind of the the whole picture, right? Well, for my picture, yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love that. Okay. Yeah. So, I want to ask you one other question before we before I ask you about your books. You yeah, um, anything. I'm I'm really curious about this. Have you had an experience since you came to Christ and uh, where you felt God was really far away? Far away. Or, or, where you, or what you might call yeah, a dark night of the yeah. soul. You know, even though I had that experience and other subsequent experiences of deep um, experiences with God, there's a part of me, and, and I want to say that clearly, a part. And in my field, there's an approach of understanding the human psyche that we are actually comprised of subpersonalities. And it, it makes sense in common, you know, everyday language. Oh, a part of me feels this, a part of me thinks this. So I have a an internal family that um, 
some of them have different ideas and thoughts and feelings and wants to do different things. Yeah. Um, but there's a part of me that still was dealing with the, the distant father issue, right? Because, um, so a part of me said, yes, Jesus loves me. I love Jesus. I had encounters with God, but then there was another part of me that distrusted that felt that God still didn't love me, that God was ready to reject me or hurt me or punish me because of a sin that I did wrong. So there's still that kind of fearful part. And that part comes out more tangibly uh, in other times than others. And and what really sort of um, kept that part very much alive was a view of God that God was in control of all things. And so God's the one, God willed my mother, I didn't share this, but my mother died of a drug overdose. So it was God's will that she died from a drug overdose. It was God's will that my brother, uh, you know, suffer from the, one of the worst mental illnesses a person can have and eventually murdered, like, and in prison for the rest of that, that's yeah, the yeah. will of God. So was she, so for a long time I held that until I started getting into this understanding that God is not in control. That so so my trust grew stronger when I realized that God was not in control of every event and uh, action or reaction that occurs in the world, which is ironic because that <laughs> yeah. would cause a lot of people anxiety to actually think that God wasn't sovereign and in control in that way. Right. So you had a redefinition of how God is sovereign. Yes. Is that what you would say? Yes. So, tell, Very much so yeah. explain that a little bit because I know people, it's a big statement and people are going to want to know what does that mean? What do you mean by that? Well, it's probably a good transition because that's sort of the the core thrust of my book. I won't Perfect. talk about my book yet, but so this understanding of of God, I thought to myself, how can I trust God? If God, like, what does it mean to trust God that tomorrow I could get into an accident and, and die, or I could lose a leg, or or I could be in a building with a mass shoot? Like, there are Christians who love God, who pray, read the Bible, and lose limbs and become, you know, maybe burned and and have relatives who die or get cancer. Like, every bad thing that can happen happens to a Christian. Yeah. So, so, So trusting God can't mean that God will sort of protect you or, right. <laughs> like, these things won't happen. Right. Being so what, a, does it, what being, does it really mean to trust God? Yeah, being right? a believer, can happen, being you know? quote-unquote faithful with your Bible study and prayer doesn't necessarily protect you from the, the things that can happen in the world. Absolutely not. Right. But there, there's sort of this, um, I don't want to say naive notion, but this unreflected upon uh, inner belief that says, well, God is my protector. He's my provider. Nothing bad is going to happen to me outside the will of God. And I just know that God's got my back and you won't let bad things happen to me. Some people walk around with that, uh, that belief system, but it's, it's while comforting, it's just not true. Right. Well, it might might be, it might also be dangerous. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's, it's, it's dangerous in a few ways too. Yeah. So, you know, I started reflecting on theodicy, which is a little bit of what we're talking about here. How does a good, uh, beautiful, loving God, uh, all-powerful God interact or not, doesn't interact in a world where there's evil? How how do we make sense of this whole conundrum of evil with a God uh, who's loving and in control or supposed to be in control of all things? So I've come to different conclusions. This is in part based on my own research. This is in part based on Thomas Ord's work, who has an approach called essential kenosis. In other words, God's love is uncontrolling. And this gets into a little bit of the heart of, of the book. Yeah. But this this shifted my, my, like, wow. Yes, God doesn't will evil. Like, 
you know, and I still meet Christians. I had a debate with a, a Calvinist on, on another uh, podcast about a month ago. Everything that happens is the will of God. It's in the plan of God. God is sovereign. God is in control. Are you kidding me? Like God wills rape and poverty and poisoning of of oceans and lead in the water system where kids are drinking and getting sick. Like these events are all the will of God and in the purpose and plan of a God who's somehow orchestrating all these events. Hell to the no. Sorry, Eric. <laughs> yeah. But no way. I cannot believe in this kind of God. Yeah. No, and I I can understand that. I I am kind of there too. Um so what is he like then? So I've come to view God as as a God who is uncontrolling, non-coercive, yeah. uh, others empowering, self-giving, a God who doesn't will evil, and it's not that God, and here's another thing, let's say an evil event occurs. It's not, let's even bring it more home, let's say a woman is raped. It's not that God chose to sit by and do nothing. It's not that God had the power to do something and chose not to intervene. From my perspective is that God could not and saying that God could not is a really crazy thing to say. And some people get very uptight about this. Yeah. But may it be that God is so loving and God is the definition of love that because God of love, God is love, God can't intervene unilaterally or single-handedly in the world to stop evil events from occurring. And and we know that, you know, God cannot lie, Hebrews 6.18, God can't be tempted, James 1.13, he can't be prejudiced, he can't sin, he cannot get tired uh, in Isaiah 40.28. But is it possible that God can't intervene in these events because God is uncontrolling love? And that's a really interesting uh, concept to to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, your book is called Divine Echoes. Reconciling prayer with the uncontrolling love of God. So it sounds like that's that's kind of what you go into in the book. Right. So how does how does prayer work? Specifically, how does petitionary prayer work? Mm-hmm. And when I say petitionary prayer, you know, that's a specific form of prayer aimed at making requests of God. Yeah. And they're pleased, usually pleased for God to be the sole responsible agent to act on behalf of the one who is praying. Yes. And, and they, could, they could be. Sorry, oh, I, I want to throw this in there because this is one of my hobby horses. It's also the main way that evangelicals are taught to pray. So we very rarely are taught to pray imaginatively or in other mm. kinds of ways. We Petitionary prayer, inter, intercessory prayer is what we see in church is what we experience in groups and it's what we're taught to do. Yeah. And petitionary prayer for me, it's talking to God and asking God to love in a specific manner in which God was not doing so beforehand. That's mm. how, that's how I want to define well, petitionary prayer. So yeah, what an how interesting does petitionary prayer work in, in a world where God is not in control? How does it work if God's nature is uncontrolling love and so that's sort of the the thrust of the book. It's basically the investigation, deconstruction, and reconstruction of petitionary prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I'll have to. I want to know more about that because I just I think it's I think it's actually again to use the word dangerous uh, or and potentially damaging to our walk to only have that one source of that one way to pray, um, mm-hmm. and that we don't actually grow very much in that. Which I I hear you. Um, maybe that's not exactly what, how you would put it, but I hear that in there in what you're saying that, uh, you know, mm. we, we, if we are only expect God to be responsible, we cannot grow into the human beings that he has actually made us to be, which is to rule and to reign, which is what God told Adam and Eve to do. It's what we will do for all of eternity in, uh, revelation, it says, so if we if we can't grow into that because we're just expecting God to do everything, that's a problem. Oh my goodness, that is a problem. I, and now <laughs> in my deconstruction section, I, I list several problems. But 
where I want to sort of just, um, I would say, yes, it's a problem for us to not grow, uh, to not be all that God has destined us to be. But I would even take it further and to say that petitionary prayer contributes to more suffering in the world. Now, it's a bold statement to make. Yeah, it is. But I, it is my thesis here that petitionary prayer contributes to evil and suffering in the world. Now, oh, okay. Mark, uh-huh. I know what you're going to ask, Eric. Yeah. How? Mark, what the heck are you saying? What do you mean it contributes to evil and suffering in the world? And I do kind of th- flush this out a bit. But let me let me share if I can. Can I share a story? Yeah, please. And um, they're a couple, Herbert and Catherine Schabel, Christian couple, love God. 2009, they suffered the tragic death of their two-year-old son, Kent. And Kent died of untreated bacterial pneumonia. Uh Why didn't they seek medical treatment? Because they believed in the power of prayer and that God would be the sole agent who would single-handedly come down and save their child. Right. But their child died. Now, if you think that's bad, in 2013, uh, serving a 10 year probation, um, their eight month old son died also from bacterial pneumonia, untreated. And they believed in God, that God was powerful. And through prayer, God would unilaterally intervene and save their child. But They didn't. So two precious children suffered needlessly and died tragic deaths. Here's the crux of the matter. It's easy to judge those parents for neglecting their children, but I had to ask for myself, how many of us, including myself, are are guilty of something similar? Yes. So how many times throughout our lives have we prayed fervently for those suffering and distress, placing all the responsibility on God to answer our prayers, while those for whom we prayed suffered needlessly because we took no responsibility to be God's answer to our prayer. And that was that was wild for me to think about. Like how many times have I prayed for somebody thinking God's going to do it, but God was sitting there like, um, yeah, I, I thank you that you're praying to me. I love that you're sharing your heart. But here's my prayer to you. Can you please serve them? bring healing to them, bring food to them, bring shelter to them. I mean, the list goes on. So for me, petitionary prayer, a traditional sort of what I might even call superstitious understanding of petitioning prayer, it does affect our own lives, but certainly it can affect the the whole world. I mean, in other words, what kind of world would we live in? What kind of churches would would we experience if our first inclination in petitionary prayer wasn't God, you do, but God, how could we do? Because I can guarantee you the very thing that we're praying for being that God is love. And if our prayer is for God to increase God's act of love in the world, it's already a yes and amen to God. This is what I call praying for basic needs. It's like God already wants people to be, uh, fed and not die from poverty, right? God already wants people to be saved and 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 have food and shelter and, and clothing. And God already wants less violence and people blowing themselves up and killing massive amounts of people. Like, hello, that's already a yes and amen to God. Right. So, yeah, I'm ve- I get very passionate about that. Su- superstitious petitionary prayer contributes to suffering and maybe it's even contribute. Well, we know it's actually contributed to people dying. Right. It's a crazy and bold statement to make. I know. Well, that's an interesting addition to say superstitious petitionary prayer. Cause I think that's right. I think sometimes we think of God as sort of a, like I used to call say, I had this little mini sermon I would give about God not being your ATM. You know, like we, we think that Uh, we can put in our, the, our code of, you put in the faith card and then put in the code of some prayer and a little Bible study, and then everything's going to, all the blessings are going to spit out exactly as we want them. And yeah. uh, that's not true at all because God is not a machine. God is a person. Um, you know, one example, so this this is just how I want to apply what you're saying to my yeah, life. Yeah. So I just found out 
today is a snowy day in Denver. It's April 21st. We're recording this and it's snowing in Denver, right? It's just the way it is here. But um, the, uh, I just found out that, so sometimes on days like this, I'll pray, uh, you know, for people who are on the street, right? There's mm-hmm. all kinds of them here in Denver. It's like most cities. I just found out that there is literally, let's say two miles north of me, maybe even less. Uh, underneath a bridge, there is a community of homeless people that live there. I had no idea. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, what, something that needs to happen in my—I don't feel be today—but something that needs to happen in my life is I got to go down there and venture down there and risk a little bit. I don't know what that's like. Yeah. I don't know who these people are. Some of them end up at my church because my church is right there um, once in a while, so our pastors know them. But I—I I feel like I've got to go up there and meet these people, and I need to know who they are, and I need to know how I can help them. And uh, you know, so maybe I need to take some of these million blankets I have over here. You know. 20 feet from where I sit right now and take them up there yeah. and give them to them. Maybe, maybe that's what I need. Maybe I need to answer the prayer. So I, I hear you saying, let's take our, our, the things we ask God for seriously and see yeah. if maybe he's not asking us to participate in his mission and, and the work that he's doing really to be his hands and feet. Yeah, absolutely. Ooh. I mean, if, if people believe that praying to God in a certain manner at a certain volume and with certain words will convince God to single-handedly root out prejudice, reduce hate crime, solve the problem of homelessness, heal drug addicts, stop people from committing arson, stop race from occurring. For yeah. me, it's engaging in magical thinking and superstition of the worst kind. And it's interesting you give that example of, of the homeless. I actually have a story in my book that, that basically talks about the whole thing. Yeah, You know, a winter storm is, is expected the following day. And there, a church is, you know, it's Wednesday night prayer meeting, and they're praying, God, pour out your love in the homeless people downtown. Help them to find shelter. Protect them from the cold and from illness. Show them the salvation of your dear son, Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. What a beautiful sounding prayer. And could very well be coming from well-meaning Christians but perhaps those church members were the ones who needed to be saved from superstitious prayers. Perhaps if, if prayer is in its simplest form talking, perhaps God was whispering, church, pour out your love on the homeless people downtown. Right. Help, help them find shelter. Protect them from the cold and from illness. Show them the salvation of my dear son, Jesus. Very powerful yeah. uh, thing you bring up there, Eric. Yeah, well, how much space do we have in our churches I mean, if we if we want to if we want to shelter people, we can do it. So, um, is this what you call conspiring prayer? It is very very close to conspiring okay. prayer. Okay, tell us about that because that that's a term. That's your website, conspiringprayer.com. Yeah, and uh, so I'm looking at this chart you have on your on your website, and I'm Ooh, I want to okay. understand that. Yeah. Okay, and this gets into now I do. Uh, like I said, three sections, investigation, deconstruction, reconstruction. You know what? I, I tell people, if you can get past the deconstruction, I promise there's a chapter uh, or a section on reconstruction. There's even 20 prayers, over 20 prayers by scholars, authors, and other lay persons who wrote their own um, conspiring prayers. So I really wanted to give practical um a practical view of what does praying in a world where God is not in control look like? What does this look like, Mark? Because, you know, as you know, Eric, there's there's a lot of people who can deconstruct. Oh, the church sucks. The church is this. uh, And they could pick apart everything. But that's easy to do. What, What? How do you reconstruct, right? How do you share something in its wake that's liberating and life-giving and encouraging and and goes towards a world of of God's beauty and shalom. That's what I want to do. So conspiring prayer is my sort of reimagining prayer. For some, it won't be reimagining. It might be just a reorientation. But conspiring to conspire comes from the Latin conspirare, which literally <laughs> means to breathe together and to act in harmony toward a common end. 
And what's interesting is in today's usage, it has sort of this negative uh, connotation, the sort of the plot together with someone to do something wrong or evil. So I combine both of those meanings and, and I define it as it's a form of prayer where we create space in our busy lives to align our hearts with God's heart, where our spirit and God's spirit breathe harmoniously together and where we plot together to subversively overcome evil with acts of love and goodness. So that's sort of a broad brush definition. So in my understanding, there's conspiring prayer is a view of God, and it has the practical application. It's two sides of a coin, view of God in practice. And so some people already do, well, Mark, our, our church listens to God and, and humbly you know, waits for God's uh, creative answer to, and to speak to our hearts, to do something good. I get that. But what's unique about this approach is it's the, the view of God and the practice together. So you talked about that, that table. So traditional petitionary prayer, God can intervene and single-handedly stop evil events from occurring, right? Like if, and I've asked many people, like this is kind of a, an understanding where, yeah, God, of course, God's all powerful. God could do what God wants when God wants to do it. Sure. And as a matter of fact, God does stop evil from occurring. And what's crazy is they admittedly say, yeah, God does heal some from cancer, but chooses not to heal others from cancer. God chooses to give parking spots to some people, <laughs> uh, but God doesn't heal little children from leukemia. Like, is this really who God is? Who's arbitrarily picking and choosing? So while the traditional understanding of petitioning prayer is God can intervene and single-handedly stop evil from occurring, in conspiring prayer, the view of God is God can't intervene and single-handedly stop evil events from occurring. God only works amidst free will uh, and free agency, not only from human beings, but then we talk about laws of nature or laws of regularity. In other words, God works in the world where God needs cooperation to carry out events, even miracles. And that's a whole nother topic. Yeah. So in traditional prayer, like I said, God's arbitrarily loving and shows favorites. But in conspiring prayer, God loves consistently and fairly. Uh, in traditional petitionary prayer, God intervenes on occasion. In my understanding, God's moment-to-moment loving and maximizing the good in all of our lives. Like God's just not in the clouds and occasionally intervenes if we pray. This very moment, if we took time to reflect on what God is doing, a God who in we live and move and have our being, a God who's giving us our, our next breath, I mean, that is love. That's loving us in this very moment, who's giving us choices and encouraging and luring us towards uh, choices that are good and beautiful and true, that bring forth shalom, more shalom in the world. That's happening every single moment. And sometimes when creaturely free will and events come into alignment with God's will and purpose, we have these wonderful events called miracles but they don't happen all the time. It's not because God chooses not to, it's that God works in a world where God doesn't force, control, or coerce others. So in the practical application, traditional petitioning prayer, we pray to God. It's more of, we're going to tell you, God, what's going on. Could you do this? Could you do that? Could you do this? Conspiring prayer, we're praying with God. So that too, and that with, it does make a difference. Traditional petitionary prayer, God, you bring shalom in this situation or person's life. Conspiring prayer says, because we know God's nature is love, we know what we're praying for is probably a yes and amen to God if it's coming from the heart and and love of God, especially with basic needs to love, heal, save, and deliver. God, how can we creatively work towards shalom in this person's life or situation? Traditional petitionary prayer, we speak, God listens. Inspiring prayer, we speak, God speaks, and we both listen. So those are some of the nuances and differences of, of yeah. traditional prayer and conspiring prayer. Yeah, I love that. It has been my contention for a long time, ever since I discovered spiritual formation, which is my background, um, mm. that we don't listen enough in prayer, that uh, actually we, we th- 
because uh, intercessory prayer is what we think is how we practice prayer most, that mm-hmm. listening is sort of gone off the, you know, it feels very strange and mystical to, to do that. Um, but that it actually is where we start to find God. And uh, so I got a whole thing about how mm. in our theology, if we if we're true to what we actually believe, then we have to accept that God will sometimes speak to us and uh, then in, and wait for that. So we have to create opportunities for him to do that, not Ooh, just wee. through scripture. Sure do. Yeah. Right. We, so not, not just, sometimes it's through reading scripture and I'm a big um, proponent yeah. and practice. Well, I wish I practiced more, but I'm a proponent of listening and imaginative prayer through, I learned from, a Jesuit in Sedalia. It's a long story, but, uh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. kind of Ignatius. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, to sit down and, and yeah, imagine yeah. through a passage and put myself in it. Um, it's amazing. It blows me away. It's great. Yeah. You know, the, the Bible is hugely important, of course, in the Christian life, but I, you know, listen, God doesn't have tape over God's mouth. Right. You know? Right. It's not like, it's not like God stops speaking. Um, you know, in, in, uh, all scriptures, God breathed, that's the Nustos, right? Uh, mm-hmm. All scriptures inspired by God, but God is still inspiring. I mean, are we really going to say that God has tape over his mouth and is no longer inspiring people? I mean, that's crazy. Now I'm not saying that other works are on the same level uh, as the canon of scripture, but certainly God is spirit who yeah. is moment to moment breathing life and, you know, luring people towards creative and wonderful and beautiful acts. I mean, right. God's alive. God is here. God is now. Right. Um, oh, yeah. It's not just in in the Bible. It's the Logos is living, uh, not just in a book. Amen. Amen. I love that. And I'm tempted to preach right now, so I'm just going to gonna let that let that be what we said. Thanks, thanks for your discipline. <laughs> yes, it's difficult, Mark. It's difficult. But uh, anyway, I love it. Thank you for bringing uh, just a little bit of uh, your heart and your story and your book. And uh, so this is Divine Echoes, again, Reconciling Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God. Friends, you can get that at Amazon and uh, I'm, I'm guessing wherever books are sold. Um, you can also go to halfwaytherepodcast.com to get uh, the show show notes. There are links there for you. Um, if you want to connect with Mark, I think you should go to conspiringprayer.com, um, and I'm sure you can connect with him there. Anything else you want to leave us with, Mark? Yeah, I just want to say that, you know, this is my investigation, deconstruction, reconstruction, uh, petitionary prayer. I do have a workbook, and there are churches— that are, you know, sort of coming together and working through their own investigation, deconstruction, reconstruction, yeah. petitioning prayer, and using my book and workbook as sort of a springboard. I'm not God. I don't have all the answers. But what I do encourage people is to think through these issues in, in petitionary prayer and theodicy. Think through them for yourself. Yeah. You know, don't just take my word for them. But I, I spent a lot of time, energy, resources, and research in this project. I hope that you can learn something valuable. If anything, I, I tell people, though you might not appreciate every pit stop, I really think you'll appreciate the final destination. Yeah. But I'm really thankful that, for this time, Eric, and uh, it's it's been a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so glad you said that because wherever you are on the journey, this may or, these are challenging ideas, and they may or may not you know, resonate with you and, and help you to kind of take the next step where God is leading you, but join the discussion. And so I see here, you've got a Facebook group, uh, discussion yes, here. Sir. So if you get mm-hmm. the book, go, go join that guys. It, it, uh, you know, might challenge you, might change a little bit of how you think and relate to God. So sounds good. And Thanks. I love interacting with readers. Let me say this, this will be crazy. If you get my book, I will give you the workbook for free. Awesome. And and as you read it, if you struggle with anything, reach out to me. I, I interact with readers almost on a daily basis. It's something that I really enjoy doing. I don't have all the answers. I'd love to learn from you too. And just throwing that out there. All right. Well, how do they get it? Well, if they 
I, I'll say this. If they get the book, let me know they purchased the book and I will email them uh, a workbook. Just go to conspiringprayer.com. You'll find my email there and send me an email. There you go. All right, guys. If you're interested in that, you can go and uh, get the book and connect with Mark and get the workbook. So that's awesome. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. You got it, Eric. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark.